Hey, Gen GND listeners, welcome to the last episode of season one of Generation Green New Deal. I'm your host, Sam Eilertsen. It's been an amazing journey to produce this series so far, and we'll be hard at work on a second season in the coming months. And don't worry, we'll still be releasing periodic standalone episodes as we produce season two. We'll also be releasing a number of bonus interviews and segments for our Patreon subscribers, including the full interviews with all three of our guests on this finale episode. So if you like this show and want to support it and get special bonus content, please head on over to patreon.com slash generation GND and become a Gen GND patron. On this season finale episode of Generation Green New Deal, I talk through the state of the climate movement and what's next with special guests, Naomi Klein. Biden is still the same person. The difference is the movement. The difference is us. Bill McKibben. Climate denial certainly got on the plane with Donald Trump and flew to Florida. And Varshini Prakash. This isn't just going to get figured out in the next six to eight months, though the next six to eight months is a critical, like super critical time. That's coming up right after this. As we were putting together this episode, I took a little time to reflect on the story and the journey that we've covered in this first season. We started the series with Sunrise Movement and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez protesting in Nancy Pelosi's office calling for a Green New Deal. Environmental activists joined by the New York Congresswoman-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez occupied House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi's Since then, we've seen a series of remarkable victories for the climate movement. The Biden administration has gone so much farther than I think almost anyone suspected just a few months ago in taking executive action on climate change. His administration is now proposing a massive green infrastructure bill, the majority of Democrats have embraced large-scale climate action, and green infrastructure spending is extremely popular, even among Republicans. Even if Joe Biden isn't using the branding, what he's proposing looks a lot like the Green New Deal. And I'll speak for myself here to say that I'm feeling kind of hopeful, which is not an emotion I'm familiar with around the climate crisis. But I've also felt a nagging question of whether that's really the right emotion to feel right now. These initial steps are heartening, but we also have so, so far to go to dig ourselves out of this crisis and build a livable and just future. To help me think through all of this, I reached out to a few people who've shaped my thinking about the climate crisis and climate politics. The first is Naomi Klein. Naomi is a renowned writer and activist, and she's written some of the most important books about climate, capitalism, and how they intersect. So I wanted to ask Naomi how she's feeling in this moment. I feel surprised not to be more disappointed. Is that is that an acceptable emotion? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there's like a German word for that. <laughs> Surprised not to feel more disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think that what we've seen from the Biden administration is um, it's, 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 it's all going in the right direction. Um, and it, and, and some of it is genuinely surprising that the speed of it. Um, I think that, that you know the, the 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 movement fingerprints, the climate, the, the environmental justice movement fingerprints um, are all over this. Um, 
and and Sunrise's fingerprints are all over it. And, you know, we can see the results of works, um, which is, you know, decades in the making, um, particularly from, from, from the EJ movement. And it's wonderful to see. And, you know, I'm particularly struck by the commitment to have climate action be um, like a kind of a connective tissue through all the different departments, which is obviously something that many of us have been demanding for a long time, but it's really nice to see it actually happening. Um, and you know, that, that, that this isn't being treated like something that can be siloed and put in a little box where the rest of the economy goes on with business as usual, right? Um, I think that there's, the jury is still out about, you know, how deep that's gonna go, particularly I, I'm watching trade policy, for instance, um, that'll be really interesting. And even the extent to which, you know, once we are in quote unquote recovery mode, right? The extent to which um, the Biden administration just starts kind of pushing um, a let's go shopping message, right? Uh, just sort of expanding a, a certain kind of wasteful consumption as a way to quickly rebound the economy post COVID that's gonna be a real test because that's an easy shortcut to get economic indicators going in the right direction. It's not a good solution when it comes to climate, right? We need to, um, we need to, to, to value different things uh, in terms of how we define a good life that isn't just attached to um, the most wasteful forms of consumption. Um, but I also have to say that there's like, there's some mixed feelings in there as well. Um, you know, 2008's on my mind, and 2009, and 2010, and 2011, because, you know, so much, those of us who've been calling for this type of action for a long time, were made to feel um, like, like, a little bit mad, you know, we were made to feel like what we were asking was impossible, um, utterly extreme, um, unserious. Um, and, it turns out that it could have happened all along. And the difference is not Biden versus Obama, um, you know, because it was Obama was, was rolling out, uh, you know, pipelines and, and fracking infrastructure um, and bragging that, that, that no government had ever overseen a fossil fuel boom like his. Biden was utterly enmeshed in that project. He's still the same person. The difference is the movement. The difference is the pressure on the outside. The difference is us. You know, he may be the same, but we're different. And that changes the calculus um, for somebody who's interested in their political power and their political future. Um, but at the same time, you know, if, you, if, we, if we understand where we're at on the climate clock, then losing those 12 years unnecessarily really hurts. It really hurts. It really hurts that we could have done this, um, not just 12 years ago, but well before that. And we need to show that we are solving multiple crises at once. Um, you know, I think that Biden, um, I think, it, but I think it's to his credit that, that in the midst of, the, uh, of, of a public health emergency, he is still foregrounding the climate emergency. He's still foregrounding the racial injustice emergency. And we need policies that really, truly, and deeply multitask um, that, you know, that, that, that are creating the jobs that we need, that are 
um, that are closing the racial wealth gap, um, that are driving emissions down at the same time. You know, you wrote um, a, a landmark work for the climate movement. I think um, I think this changed everything came out in like what 2014. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, so you've been watching the trajectory for a long time, and like was, and I, I'm wondering if you wanted to just reflect on like what it's been like to see the movement sort of grow and all and sort of go mainstream, like you were saying. Yeah. The biggest shift that I see is, is that, you know, when I, when I published this changes everything in 2014, I got a lot of pushback from mainstream green groups who were like, you know, the subtitle of that book is capitalism versus the climate. And they're just like, I can't tell you how many people told me I was not being helpful mm-hmm. by talking about capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, people you know, took me aside and said, like, okay, climate change was a big enough problem. Did you have to make it about capitalism? And, you know, I'm just, I didn't make it about capitalism. It just <laughs> is about capitalism. But it was very much treated as like a bad branding decision on my part. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I don't think of it as a branding decision, but that's sort of the way it was treated. And it was very much like, um, there was very much an attitude, I would say, among big green groups at that time that climate was like a popular mainstream issue, but fighting for racial justice, fighting for gender justice, um, eradicating poverty, redistributing wealth from the global north to the global south, those were unpopular ideas. And that it was an idea that it was somehow climate was being kind of weighed down. And, you know, I always countered actually, you know, if you want to win, you need a fighting movement. And the people who really fight are the people who have the most to gain from a, from a transformed world. And we had a really middle-class climate movement um, that didn't have that same fighting spirit. You know, it didn't have the kind of fight that you see, you know, in places like Standing Rock, um, you know, where people are fighting for their lives, they're fighting for their water. And, and so I think that, that, you know, people in their 20s now and younger have only seen capitalism in crisis ever. You know, since they've been paying attention, capitalism has been a crisis for them since the 2008 financial crisis. And it's failing on almost every level, you know. Um, So the idea of climate change changing everything isn't a scary thought the way it was for my, a lot of people in my generation. It's like, oh, good. Like this whole thing is like a dumpster fire. So like, we're really ready for that change. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think everyone is knows that like the 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 nightmare scenario is like 2024 you know well democrats get wiped out in 2022 and then 2024 is like josh hawley or ivanka trump or someone like that becomes president and we continue slip sliding into um into fascism so like um what do you what do you see as being the way to sort of build a sustainable sustainable power and a sustainable coalition that can um can actually continue to build power over uh, over the next decade? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, we have to um, keep the pressure up on every single front for the Biden administration to do more. And not just Biden, state governments, municipal governments, because people need to feel the benefits in their lives um, fast. And this is what FDR did understand. Um, you know, an example that I often talk about is, is um, if you look at the, the, the Civilian Conservation Corps 
right? The, the program that employed 2 million young people to plant 3 billion trees, built 800 state parks, and, 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 and Biden is, is talking about reviving that idea with the Civilian Climate Corps. Really interesting thing that, that, uh, that FDR did is he cited the CCC camps in the parts of the country that voted against him. Um, and he did it right away. So those communities saw benefits, improved services. Um, they saw jobs in their communities. They saw income going to their communities. And you can actually map that in 1936, when he won by a landslide, was reelected by a landslide, that many of those communities flipped. So I think there's like, you know, I think there's a lot of conversations we need to have about the war on democracy, about the state of our information ecology. And, you know, this is not to say that and one thing is more important than the other. I think we need deep, deep democratic reform. And, and, I, and I think we, we, we have to clean up our information ecology and we need to regulate big tech um, because QAnon is basically Facebook's tailing pond as far as I'm concerned. Um, this is what it means to have an extractivist information economy, extracting our data and our engagement, um, as opposed to you know, building a, a, a generative uh, uh, um, information commons where, where we're encouraged to have good conversation uh, that sustains our democracy. Um, we need to do all that. But we also just need results in people's communities because nothing speaks louder than that. Nothing speaks louder than that. Um, and so, you know, we're doing Biden a favor when we're pushing him to do more. And, and, and we will have to fight for the keystone victory to become not a single pipeline victory, but a principle. You know, when we, when we started uh, campaigning against, against keystone, um, we talked about the keystone principle, which was, if you're in a hole, stop digging. That was the keystone principle. I think it was Casey Golden who, who, who first articulated it. Um, and, and so it, yes, it's great that we want the fight about keystone, but we need the keystone principle to be applied to the Dakota Access Pipeline, to line three, to every new fossil fuel infrastructure project, because we're in the era of wind down. One of the people who's been deeply involved in the fight against that Keystone Pipeline and who's really helped lead pretty much every climate fight since before there was a climate movement is Bill McKibben. We met Bill back in episode four. He wrote one of the first books about climate change, The End of Nature, which was published the same year that I was born. He's a co-founder of the global climate activist organization 350.org. Like Naomi, Bill is feeling optimistic about the path the Biden administration is taking. But he also was sure to point out that both in the U.S. and internationally, we need to do a lot more than what is currently even on the table to really get ourselves out of this crisis. I think, I mean, A, everybody is so relieved to be done with Trump and the idea of just kind of ignorance rampant, um, that it's a, you know, that alone is a great pleasure. But I must say, I think that so far the, on climate issues, the Biden administration has probably surprised most people with the vigor of their uh, approach. And I think that the reason for that, and the reason that it's not so surprising to me, is that I think what's shifted and this is in large part thanks to movements, though that's not the only reason, 
is the zeitgeist. What activists have been fighting for, I think, the last 10 years in the middle of all the other work we've, you know, all the fights we've been doing about pipelines and frack wells and divestment of endowments and things, I, you know, each of those targets has been important and significant in its own right, but taken together, what they're also doing, has, have been doing, is creating a new sense of what's normal and natural and obvious. And that work that the movements have been doing has been, sadly, deeply complemented by the work that Mother Nature is doing to educate us uh, about what's going on in the world, uh, the endless outbreak of fire and flood and devastation. And those two sets of work have been complemented by the great work of engineers who've spent the last 10 years dramatically lowering the price of solar power and wind power to the point where the alternatives to fossil fuel aren't as scary as they were a decade ago. So taken together, those three streams seem to me to have now decisively shifted that zeitgeist. I think that climate denial and even, um, well, climate denial certainly got on the plane with Donald Trump and flew to Florida. And, uh, you know, God knows how climate denial can survive at two feet above sea level in Florida, but who knows. But um, I, I think that kind of overt denialism is probably gone from our political life now. Um, you know, I think the, the U.S. climate movement has been very focused on the U.S. Um, for the past few years because we've been we've become sort of, you know, we've, we've been sort of the worst offender in the entire world yes. um, under Trump. But like, um, what is what is the international like with Kerry sort of bringing us back into the international um, fold on climate with us rejoining the Paris Agreement, like what what is the international situation um, sort of look like, and and what do you think can be done to like you know turn the Paris Commitment into like an actual into transformation that will actually work and be binding and get us to where we need to be? That's a good question. Um, I think Kerry has said that he views like Glasgow next November as the most important focus of his work. And what Glasgow, if it, if it comes off well, it'll be the most important climate meeting, except for the Paris meeting, uh, you know, in the long history of these international gatherings. Paris, they got the rhetoric right. We want to hold the temperature increase to 1.5 to 2 degrees. Okay, that was a big deal. Uh, they got the rhetoric right, but they got all the pledges wrong. I mean, if you add them all up, the temperature still goes up like three or three and a half degrees, right? So this time we actually have to start getting more of the pledging right. And it's possible to imagine that happening because the price of solar power and wind power has dropped, you know, 50% since the Paris Climate Accords. Like there's no longer anything really standing in the way of making this rapid transition except vested interest and inertia. And those are difficult forces to overcome, but they're not hard to overcome the way that like physics or, you know, even economics are hard to overcome. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, as you've said, like all these new developments are, are really encouraging, but there's also um, a lot more, you know, we sort of have to have exponential growth of decarbonization or <laughs> exponential decarbonization, you could say, um, to get us to where we need to be. 
Um, so like what, what would the transformation over the next few years and over the next 10 years um, to like ramp up to that level um, look like? Well, it would look like um, what the first draft of the Green New Deal plan looked like, you know? And to some degree, it just looked like a larger scale version of what um, Biden's infrastructure, green infrastructure plan looks like. I mean, it's not like it's, there's an insane amount of complexity to all of this. You gotta build huge number of solar panels, windmills, batteries, and connect them to, you know, a bunch of cars and trains and, uh, and you know, replace the furnaces and buildings with electric heat pumps and, uh, you know, None of this stuff is technically um, uh, out there. In fact, it's all the stuff that you'd mostly use now if you were building something from scratch, you know. Um, the problem is just we're not building it from scratch. There's a lot of stuff that's already out there. A lot of people have a vested interest in keeping it that way. You, you almost said what we need is Biden's infrastructure plan, but bigger. <laughs> is that mm. accurate? And like how much, <laughs> how much bigger? A lot bigger, yeah. uh, you know, you've got to, I mean, the, the math is brutal. You've got to reduce emissions, you know, seven, eight percent a year to get us to where the IPC says we need to be in 2030. Seven or eight percent a year is an astonishing amount. So that, you know, that's really hard. I mean, it had, I mean, the only times we've done things on this same scale um, that you can really point to are the kind of industrial effort uh, at the very beginning of the Second World War and our involvement there. What do you think is um, is the right way for the climate movement to continue to um, to hold our politicians accountable and to continue to also like keep building power? Well, I gotta say, I think that the so far the people who are really um, at the forefront of you know the sort of movement um, dealing with political power in Washington are doing a fantastic job. Um, so I would, I would think about two groups in particular, indigenous people who've been absolutely at the forefront of the climate fight for 10 or 15 years and have just you know, positioned themselves and, and the movement really well. And I think Deb Holland, the new secretary of the interior is gonna be an important player. And the fact that an indigenous person now has control over 20% of the landscape of the United States um, strikes me as a really good thing and, and should produce great change and such credit to, you know, the, the just enormous number of people from indigenous environmental network, from honor the earth, from uh, GNU collective, from, you know, on and on and on who have just done a fantastic job. The other group I'd say is the Sunrise Movement. And it's been a real pleasure to watch their sophistication in dealing with the political currents in DC. I mean, they pushed Biden hard in the primaries. Um, and, then, and then, you know, sort of as Bernie's representatives sat down with the Biden team and hammered out a lot of the good stuff we're seeing happen now. And they're doing a good job of backing it and, you know, staying, managing to be both supportive and still, you know, their own selves and things. It, it, it's really, um, uh, the maturity of it is wonderful to watch. Yeah. 
Yeah. And um, uh, I feel like one thing that I've been hearing a lot about, and I, I, I would love to hear your um, perspective on this, uh, the, the, the rise of, of, um, of power and influence and voice of the environmental justice um, community and the environmental justice movement within um, the environmental yeah. advocacy um, sector. And I'm wondering, like, yeah, how do, what is... Um, what do you think that yeah how, how do you how do you think the environmental um movement has changed as a result of um sort of environmental justice and racial justice groups um becoming more uh, i think it's centered? changed entirely for the better um i think it's mm-hmm. far more um fun to be a part of <laughs> um and uh far more real and it's just you know reaching people who are like way more committed. I mean, when you look at the polling data, it's African-Americans and, and Latino Americans who care about climate change, um, you know, uh, and it's white people who are in the way of making, they're the ones who keep voting for morons, whatever. Um, um, so it's really good to have uh, uh, people leading the fight who should be leading the fight. And I think they basically are leading the fight in lots of ways now. Um, and, and, and I think that the justice argument that they, you're making is such a, is such, is so profoundly powerful, um, you know, and it really trumps the argument that, uh, or, or actually serves as a perfect complement to the argument that the kind of older environmental argument about, um, you know, what's happening to the earth and, and so on it's really good to have people saying, yeah, yeah, fine. Um, and, and this is really happening to real people in real time. And here's what it looks like. And, and that's, I mean, it's, it's changed the way that I think about things. That's for sure. If, if I'm sound optimistic, more optimistic than perhaps normal for me, it's mostly because I think the movement is in such good hands. Um, uh, I think that the young people uh, uh, who are largely running it are doing a fantastic job. I think its diversity is amazing. I think its rootedness in indigenous and frontline communities gives it a kind of stability and depth that environmentalism often lacked. Um, And I, I, I hope, and this may be work I'm going to be doing more of the next few years, that we can bring the one group that isn't fully engaged, which is older people, uh, fully on board too. Uh, if you can get grandparents answering the call of, you know, the kind of sunrise movement generation, then we've got a chance at political shifts that'll make rapid progress easier, it seems to me. The last person I spoke to is one of the leaders of that young generation of activists, Sunrise Movement Executive Director Varshini Prakash. When we met Varshini back in episode one, she was doing a lot of leading protests, making life difficult for politicians who didn't back the Green New Deal, and touring around the country in a very crowded van. 
Since then, Sunrise has become a serious political player, and Varshini has taken on a role that entails a bit less making trouble for politicians, though Sunrise certainly still does that, um, and more negotiating and working directly with those politicians. Sunrise has also had to adapt a lot over the past year. The pandemic disrupted a lot of their plans that were focused on large-scale civil disobedience and doing thousands of in-person events and trainings. So I wanted to ask what that transformation has been like for the Sunrise Movement and for her personally, and what's next for the movement as they continue to work towards winning a Green New Deal. I am feeling pretty good. I'm feeling, um, you know, it's just really wild to see the things that we have been building towards for three years become reality in a lot of ways. I mean, we set out in the summer of 2017 when we launched Sunrise with a vision, as we've said five gajillion times before, of making climate change a priority in this country and in our politics and, you know, giving the Democratic Party a real mandate um, from the public to deliver on a bold plan to stop the climate crisis and, and racial and economic inequality. And to see, you know, Joe Biden, who was <laughs> touted himself as the moderate of moderates, <laughs> coming in, being, you know, declaring he wants an FDR-style presidency where he passes dozens of bills and where he, you know, is talking about a bold green jobs and infrastructure plan that is going to employ millions upon millions of people and deliver COVID relief and expand democracy and, uh, you know, pass labor reform and all of these things are, it's a sight to behold. And I think it's, I feel very validated in our, our theory of change around building people power and political power, you know, um, that we need both of these things at once. We need to have this potent grassroots force and we need to be pushing on all levers of power, including our politics um, and on the Hill. So, you know, feels good. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and certainly you should all be very proud. Um, I wanted to um, I wanted to kind of reflect on the last two years and what they've been what they've been like for you. I mean, I, you know, are about, uh, just about two years ago, a little less than two years ago, the two of us were driving around uh, <laughs> the country in a rental van full of trash bags, full of t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, Sunrise has certainly grown into a very potent political force, um, over the past two years. Um, and there've, you know, been highs and lows. I mean, you know, about a year ago was the sort of the big low point of like Bernie losing in the pandemic, <laughs> disrupting all of the mobilization plans. Um, and, you know, then you um, ended up on the, the Bernie Biden task force and had a huge um, impact in, in pushing Biden um, to sort of become, <laughs> become the candidate that, that we hoped he would be. So yeah, what what has the what is your what is your journey over the last two years been like? You know, I think I think I feel like as of two years ago, one of you know your one of your biggest roles was like leading big protests and giving speeches and like um, you know since the task force, you've definitely become more of a you, you've had to take on more of the insidery roles. Like, what is holding that? What has the journey of like figuring out how to hold and navigate that yeah. duality been like? 
Yeah, no. Um, it's been weird to have to hold both of those things at once. I, you know, I always saw myself as outside of the power structure in a lot of ways. And then all of a sudden I'm like finding myself in like presidential task force meetings and like raising money and finding myself in um, rooms with congressional officials and engaging with all of these elites and this power structures that I just never being on media. Like I never thought I would be on media, you know, and, and seeing myself, I, I don't think I really processed that it was happening. I was just sort of like, yeah, this is just the next thing I guess that I need to do. But then getting in, you know, I, I feel like particularly in the task force, it was just this wild experience to be at a place where I know a lot of the, 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 the folks that we organize and, and organize with and, and things like that, we're really skeptical about the process. We're really, really skeptical about me um, engaging in the process and skeptical about what it would return for a good reason. A lot of times these, you know, people like me in task forces like this are window dressing, right? Um, and I think the, you know, progressive movements have frequently in the United States had such an aversion to political power that we actually leave a lot of power on the table. And it was, I knew it was very critical. Like, even if we didn't get everything we wanted out of this process, it was necessary to engage because it's progress. It moves us forward. And if we hadn't been on it, I don't think they would have come out with such a progressive plan. Um, and so it was this, yeah, it's like this very difficult line to walk of both being deeply convicted in your values and the people that are at your back and the thousands and thousands of people that you represent in that room that you can walk in and you can hold yourself with dignity um, and realizing like you are here to move the ball forward, but you're not here to be righteous or you're not here to just throw stones or, you know, whatever it is you can fight, but you fight from a place of, of, you know, negotiating of like, getting what you can for what you built and um, realizing also the humanity of the people that you are negotiating with. Um, and that was really difficult. There were a lot of moments where I was like, am I losing myself or am I not pushing hard enough or am I enough or do I deserve to be here? Am I smart enough? Am I skilled enough? Like, what if I'm doing this wrong? What if people like Bernie or <laughs> it was, see, what if they don't think well of me and like all of these insecurities start to come up, but then you remember like, no, I'm not here alone. Like I'm here because I'm carrying the values and the vision of just millions of people. And, and that's what I represent. So paralleling like what you just talked about in terms of your own personal journey, like um, Sunrise has certainly had to adapt um, over the past year or so, particularly with the pandemic. I know that, um, you know, the, the original strategy envisioned a very large civil disobedience campaign starting like, <laughs> right, right, right now, right now. <laughs> um, in 2020 um, or, or 2021, right after the election. Um, so what's next? <laughs> I know there's a lot in flux, but like, um, what's, what's Sunrise planning on um, focusing on for the next six months to a year? For the next six months to a year, we are, you know, we're focusing on working with our allies around delivering real, um, uh, you know, around the, the like relief packages that are around and, and we're working on 
expanding our democracy and working with our allies on how we can actually strengthen our democracy, abolish things like the filibuster, um, work towards, um, uh, you know, automatic voter registration and making sure that they're uh, that that the right to vote is protected for all people across this country. Um, I think the other piece and, and the sort of primary purpose of, of what Sunrise is going to be doing over the next six to eight months is pushing for Congress to pass the largest jobs and infrastructure plan to tackle the climate crisis that we possibly can. There's so much work to be done to avert climate change and so many people who need work. And so how can we actually connect people to jobs where they are um, improving our water infrastructure and making sure that no child gets uh, lead poisoning ever again? Um, how can we be rebuilding out renewable energy infrastructure so we can stop um, burning fossil fuels? Uh, how can we engage in more sustainable agriculture practices? How can we invest in public transit at the same level that we invest in, you know, highways and, and, and roads and bridges? And so I think there is a ton of work to be done on rebuilding America's infrastructure in a way that actually tackles our climate crisis and in a way that employs millions and millions of, of people and young people in that process. I mean, I think, you know, Sunrise is, uh, is talking about this being the first year of the decade of the Green New Deal. Um, and you alluded to, you know, some of the things you're working on being more long term um, steps to rebuild American democracy and build power like voter registrations. Like what what is it what would it look like to continue to build power over the coming years? Well, there's a reason why it's called the Green New Deal. And that's because it, it, you know, we can learn many lessons of what to do and also what not to do from the New Deal. Um, we have this, you know, the New Deal was essentially a decades long process of passing. I think they, they either created or enhanced almost 60 different programs for social to, to improve the um, um, uh, conditions for, for working Americans over, you know, 12, a 12 year span. And so I think the sense is, you know, this problem is not going to get fixed by one bill in Congress. This is a decades long problem that needs a decades long solution of passing dozens of pieces of policy at the federal level, but also at all levels of government over time. Um, and basically it means that every single bill or piece of like, yeah, every piece of legislation that gets passed from here on out has to be a climate bill. Like it has to deeply integrate and involve climate at every single level if we want to tackle this crisis on the timeline that is required. Um, and so, you know, whether it's, it's um, and I think we need to expand our understanding of what climate is. It's not just you know, something to be tackled by the EPA and the Department of Energy. And it doesn't just relate to renewable energy. Um, it relates to the agricultural sector and whether or not agriculture is a source of carbon or a way to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, we need to, uh, you know, figure out whether um, it's about our water infrastructure and uh, about whether every person in this country has access to clean air and clean water. Um, it's about cleaning up toxic Superfund sites, basically toxic waste sites that are, you know, disproportionately placed in tribal nation communities, poor black areas um, and Latinx neighborhoods, rural communities, etc. Um, it's about bringing the nation literally 
up to speed, like getting a, you know, a new power grid, electrical grid um, that can, um, that is a lot more functional for the 21st economy. And that creates millions and millions of jobs to make that happen. And I think we've got to understand this isn't a, this isn't just going to get figured out in the next six to eight months, though the next six to eight months is a critical, like super critical time. Um, This is a problem of the next decade or longer. I mean, I think any person who wants to claim the mantle of the highest leadership position in America of of president to to have where Biden's at be the floor, not the ceiling, I think is 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 going to be critical. As Varshini and all of our guests today have pointed out, there are so many more battles ahead. But after talking to Naomi, Bill and Varshini, I feel more vindicated in allowing myself to be optimistic, and I hope that you do too. Hopefully you've enjoyed listening to the first season of Gen GND as much as we have producing it, and please stay tuned as we continue to cover the decade of the Green New Deal. Also, we'd love to hear feedback on the show so far. We have a survey for listeners, which we will be linking to in the show notes. We want to hear what your favorite episode is and what kind of stories you'd be interested in listening to on our second season. So please fill out the survey, which will be linked to in the show notes and on generationgreennewdeal.com slash podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash generation GND. And also leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help new listeners find us. You can follow us on social media. We're at Generation GND. And find links to all of this at generationgreennewdeal.com. Special thanks this week to Jackie Joyner, Victoria Garcia, and Patreon subscribers Alan White, Diane Savitsky, Pierre Camus, Sandra Krupp, that's my mom, thanks mom, uh, Solomon Freelich, Aaron Birnbaum, Quinn Cooter, Ann Dorney, Deborah Kelsey, Aaron Raftery, Scott McCauley, Johnny Williams, and Justin Boyan. We couldn't do it without your support, so thank you. I'm your host, Sam Eilerson. Nate Birnbaum and I created the show and wrote and produced this episode with Michael Catano. Our executive producers are Amy Wettervelt and Eric Axelman. Our story consultant is Maggie Lemire. Nick Damons is our script consultant. Mariel Olentine produces our companion videos. Michael Catano is our editor and also our mix engineer. Polka Dada is our impact producer. Alex Ostroff is our archival producer. Transcription by Shelby Lambert. Our artwork was created by Matthew Fleming, and our theme song is Which Side Are You On by B. Dolan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>